Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors, presented by FMG Suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world. Visit FMGSuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now, without further delay, the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Hi, everyone. Mike Woods here, one of the founding members of FMG Suite. Welcome to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. More than 40,000 advisors rely on FMG Suite to help them stay connected, build relationships, and grow their business. Now it's your turn. Visit us at fmgsuite.com and schedule a demo so you can see our tools in action. In today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend, Robert Powell, who's the editor of The Street's Retirement Daily. Bob has written about personal finance, investments, and retirement since 1986, and recently started a project with CNBC's Mad Money host, Jim Cramer. It's called Training to Help Your Financial Future. When FMG creates content, we believe the financial advisor needs to be involved in all of your financial decisions. You can see it in how we write things, how we phrase things. Bob's team shares a similar philosophy and takes it one step further. They believe an educated investor makes better decisions when working with the financial advisor. So on with the show, introducing Bob Paul, everyone. Hi, everybody. Mike Woods here, one of the founding members of FMG Suite, and I want to welcome everybody to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. Today, I'm joined by our guest, Robert Powell, editor of The Streets Retirement Daily. Bob, are you ready for uh, some fast pitch retirement questions today? Uh, fast pitch, slow pitch, uh, funky pitch, whatever you got. Whatever I got. Knuckleballs coming over the plate. Uh, um, Bob has written about personal finance, investments, and retirement since 1986. Bob uh, wrote for USA Today for some time, and and those were some of my favorite articles he put out. Um, I'd encourage everyone to take a few minutes to connect with Bob on Twitter. He's at uh, RJP, Robert J. Powell, 123, or was uh, Robert J. Powell the third? So the uh, three I's. I, 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 You'll you'll have fun. You'll be entertained, educated, and Bob has fifteen thousand followers, so you'll be you'll be right in with everybody else. Um, I'd also encourage everybody who's on the podcast today to open a browser and jot down a few notes as Bob and I talk about retirement. These uh, uh, some of the notes you have here could could help you put together a blog post uh, that would certainly be unique and entertaining for your readers. And uh, as we've talked about on many 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 occasions, having that unique content on your website is critical. So. If you're not behind the wheel listening to the podcast, if you're at your office, uh, open a browser, get a couple of ideas, make a couple of Bob, uh, make a couple of pot. <laughs> I can't get that one out. Make a couple of blog posts. Um, well, Bob speaks with financial advisors like yourself every week about retirement. So his perspective and ideas are what many people work with. So, uh, Bob, with that, that's probably the biggest introduction I've ever given you in 30 years. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the program. Uh, Bob is the proud father of triplets, too. So uh, if, if anybody has any parenting questions, and he, and he got them all the way through college. Are they through college now, Bob? So uh, the boys have graduated college, and one is about to start a Ph.D. program. And then my daughter is a rising junior at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. So not done yet, but uh, I'm happy to talk about child raising and education. <laughs> uh, we'll do it. We'll do a 529 or a college saving on the, the next podcast. Uh, yes. Sit the ground running on this one. Um uh, Let's first focus on preparing for retirement, and then we'll talk about when uh, folks are in retirement. Um, one of the one of the questions I get most often, Bob, here at FMG is, uh, what what things do people do right? What people what things do people overlook when they're preparing for retirement? So I want to push that one over to you. What are some of the things that uh, people do right? One of the things that people overlook? Yeah. So this is the toughest question on your list of questions, Mike. And I think what do, what do people do right? And I'm often reminded of how much they do wrong. But when I think about what they do right, I, I think uh, I, I'm reminded of the Employee Benefit Research Institute study. Each year they come out with something called the Retirement Confidence Survey. And one of the things that they note is that if you've taken the time and trouble to calculate your number, that is how much you need to have in your nest egg to fund your retirement, then you're doing something right, that you've just, in effect, improved your confidence levels in being able to fund your retirement. So I'd say number one is if you're calculating your number, you're doing something right. Um, number two is, is, is are you safe? 
behaving in the right way. A lot of folks are sort of have been told that they should just defer all their money in a 401k. But now that we have products like the health savings account, and you might have a Roth 401k at your workplace, uh, it might be time to really think about what's the tax, the most tax efficient way to save for retirement. In many cases, it might mean saving in your HSA first, and then thinking about how much money you have in your traditional 401k, and whether it's overloaded to the point where if, if when you get to retirement, that all the money that you're taking out of your retirement accounts is taxable. Um, and so you might want to think about splitting up or some of that money so that you're putting some in an HSA, some in a Roth 401k, and then finally putting some in, a, in your traditional 401k. So think more about how it is you're saving for retirement and which accounts you're using. And then the last thing that people are doing right and also wrong, but the folks who do it right are, are, are controlling their spending. And it's like one of the variables that people have the opportunity. We can't control interest rates, right? We can't hardly control the return you get on your portfolio. Uh, you can't control whether you'll become uh, ill in retirement. But the one thing that you do have control over is how much you save for retirement and, and how much you spend. So it, the people who do it right are controlling their spending. They're, they're not overspending on housing. Um, they're, they're not necessarily uh, overspending on discretionary items. Uh, you know, they, they really have their spending in check. Gotcha. You know, that uh, the second one you touched on there, uh, you know, 10 years ago was you only had the 401k option, or if you were a, a teacher, you had 403b or something like that, uh, a government employee, 457. Uh, yeah. But now you have the HSA, now you have the Roth IRA, or excuse me, the Roth 401k. Do you get, Bob, do you get much pushback with people as they use the HSA? Is there concern that the government may change the rules, that that that, that, that way of uh, deferring money until retirement may go away someday? Or uh, how do people feel about that? Yeah, I think that, that that's always a concern. But you can't, you know, you can't plan for tomorrow based on conjecture, right? I sure. mean, it's sort of like you have what you have in front of you, and so you can use it. And I think uh, you know, no one is going to completely uh, change the rules so that all the money com coming out of a Roth uh, 401k or Roth IRA or HSA will be taxable. I think that would be just sort of contrary to everything that's ever been, you know, sort sure. of said and done with respect to these accounts. Sure. So I would worry less about that and maybe more about things that they would do. And we can talk about this later, you know, more about ways that they might tax Social Security or might, uh, you know, tax um, uh, earned income or whatever. I mean, I think there'll be other places versus, you know, a product or an account where people have um, heretofore, you know, pledged that they would be tax-free distributions at the end of the Sure, so. sure. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of HSAs. I think people, yeah, people do better when they are, uh, people make better medical decisions when it's their money. Well, that and, and also, you know, it's, it's quadruple tax, uh, you know, it's quadruple tax benefit, right? Because uh, it's not subject to FICA. It's going in pre-tax. It's uh, growing tax, uh, tax-free, tax and then it's coming out tax-free. So it's better than an IRA or a 401k in many respects. Sure. The problem with HSAs at the moment is nationally, the number of the, you know, the, the national average in HSA is very low, which means that people are tending to use these not for their intended purpose. They're using them for current medical expenses as opposed to what was billed at the time when they were introduced under President Bush as a IRA for our healthcare expenses. Uh -huh. And I think, they, you know, if, if you, what you do is use your HSA truly as an account for expenses that you'll have in retirement, then the account balances will grow to some fairly significant numbers. But on the other hand, if you use it for current medical expenses, well, you know, you get part of the benefit, but not all, not the major benefit. Yeah. Interesting. That's a, that's a, that's a great blog post for a financial advisor listening out. Listening yeah. That's a great blog post. All yeah. right, Bob, let's, uh, how about three things that get overlooked? Well, I think, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone anything new here, but they're worth repeating. So uh, people with, uh, don't underestimate their longevity. Um, you know, they look at the, they may read something that says, oh, life expectancy at age 68 is, is uh, 80 years, right? So that means I've got another whatever odd, you know, maybe 15 to 20 years to live. Sure, right. And what they fail to account for is the possibility that, well, half of the people die before life expectancy and half die after. And I don't know which half you'll be in. But I think what you better do is not plan to be in the half that will die before life expectancy and then outlive life expectancy, right? Then you've done yourself a tremendous disservice. Either you haven't saved enough 
or the quality or standard of living will be such that uh, after you get to life expectancy and beyond, you know, it will be lower than what it was uh, pre-retirement. And that's not what anyone's goal is or should be when they're thinking about retirement, right? You want, you want to be able to fund your pre-retirement standard of living throughout your retirement. So right. think long and hard. I think, you know, people tend to say, oh, I'm concerned about outliving my assets, but then they don't do anything about it. So I think, you know, think long and hard about longevity. Um, healthcare, healthcare expenses in retirement is it's sort of a great unknown, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but people don't account for how much it might cost uh, to pay for healthcare expenses in, in retirement. And then uh, I, I mentioned it as one of the things that people do right. It's also one of the things that people do wrong. They tend to go into retirement without having created a budget uh, and without having a good idea of how much they spend on housing, transportation, uh, healthcare in general, expected healthcare expenses. And those three things alone, healthcare, transportation, and housing, represent generally about 50% of a retiree's budget in retirement. So sure, if you right. haven't, if you're, right, if, you're, if you've overlooked this, if you haven't planned for this, if you haven't thought about, you know, how much you're going to spend on what item, then, you know, you're really, uh, you're really going into retirement and winging it, and, and no one should go into retirement winging it. <laughs> yeah, especially, yeah, I agree, because the, uh, I, I, survey after survey, the number one fear is running out of money. Well, okay. Right. How long you live, yeah. how much money you got, uh, add them up and divide. And, um, uh, but, uh, don't plan if you're supposed to live to 86, don't plan on your money running out in your 86th year. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other interesting thing, you know, people say that they have a fear about living their assets. They also don't want to be a burden on their sure, family right. members. Yep. So the greatest way to make sure that you're not a burden on your family members is to make sure you don't outlive your assets. And, you know, that's well within your control. And, you know, again, there are lots of things that you lots of levers you can pull to make that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, that uh, certainly that discussion we had in the HSA is uh, can play a critical role there. It can. All right. Let's move to uh, let's move uh, to my next one because I like this one. If there was one piece of advice financial advisors should make certain, one hundred percent of their pre-retiree clients understand. They just have to have one. They, they just want to give them a tattoo of one concept. So every time they look at it, they think of uh, this one piece of advice. Yeah. So I already mentioned expenses and making sure you have a you know good handle on your housing, transportation, healthcare expenses. The other side of that, the cash flow statement is, you know, your income. So really get a good sense of your sources of income. How much Social Security will, will you get and when will you claim it? Do you have any defined benefit pension money coming? How much will you have in your IRA and how much will you withdraw from it? And then the last piece, piece that people forget about is a lot of times people work in retirement. After they've left their primary career, they keep working either on a part-time or full-time basis, often for pay, but sometimes not. But if you, you know, in, according to the Social Security, the average is about somewhere around like 25 to 33% of the income you have in retirement will come from earned income. So you really need to, but it doesn't last forever, right? Working in retirement typically ends around age 70 for the average retiree. Right, right. So, you know, right. So when you're factoring in your sources of income, you've got to look at, you know, what's guaranteed, what's going to be, you know, income for life, uh, what's inflation adjusted. Uh, what's in a risky asset that may be subject to things like sequence of return risk, and then you know how much money we'll get from working and for how long. And I think if you can get a good handle on your sources of retirement income and match that against your expenses, uh, that will be a, a good piece of advice for pre-retirement clients. I would add one thing to that, Mike, which is uh, there was a gentleman named Farrell Dolan. He used to work at Fidelity, and he, he had created something called the four-box strategy, which I'm fairly fond of. It, it talks about the using guaranteed sources of income like Social Security and pensions to, to offset your essential expenses in retirement and then using um, uh, your non-guaranteed sources of income uh, to fund your discretionary expenses. And if there's a gap between you know, what you're getting from guaranteed sources of income to fund your essential expenses that you would pull from your IRA and convert that money either into systematic withdrawals or uh, a single premium immediate annuity or something that would at least make sure that you have income to fund those essential ex expenses. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, as you talked about that, I think, boy, there's nothing an Excel spreadsheet couldn't handle and nothing that a financial advisor 
certainly could answer for someone if they came in their office. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that's happened along the way is, you know, for many years, advisors were helping clients plan for retirement, accumulate a nest egg, and uh, but weren't necessarily, ha didn't have a client base that was retiring and then facing all these questions. And and all of a sudden, uh, it probably started, I'm going to guess, around 2005, where advisors started saying, hey, my clients are, asked, are starting to retire. I need to know about Social Security. My clients are starting to retire. I need to know about Medicare and whether Medicare Advantage makes sense. So what's a Medigap policy? And so I'd say over the past, I don't know, since 2005, literally, you know, we've watched advisors become smarter about uh, helping their clients live in retirement, not just plan for retirement. Right, right. Uh, switching from accumulation to the distribution part. Exactly. And, you know, and for many folks, you know, advisors, they had to learn something. I, you know, just by, by that way of background, I was involved in the education program that's offered by the Investments and Wealth Institute called the Retirement Management Advisor Designation. I was part of a team that helped build that out. And it was a, it was a course that was designed, in essence, to pick up where the CFP retirement course ended. And it was designed, whereas the CFP retirement uh, uh, focuses on accumulation, um, you know, this course is all about decumulation and how to build what we've described as a retirement policy statement, just much like an investment policy statement, but sure. designed around retirement and distributions. And, and we'll talk more about this, but all the risks that you might face in retirement. Gotcha. Interesting. All right. Well, I want to go to one of your passions. I want to talk a little yep. bit about uh, many of the listeners may not know that you're working uh, with Jim Cramer on a, on, a, on, a, on a program called Training to Help Your Financial Future. Give us an idea of what uh, what you and Jim are working on, because uh, my my uh, I, I usually start every day off with my uh, with my Cheerios and Jim Cramer, uh, him wrapping the market up for me at six thirty in the morning. Yeah, you got to get up pretty early in the morning to beat Jim Cramer to work. I have to tell you that uh, it's uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure working with Jim, but my goodness, you can't. I, I've never been able to get into the office before him. I can tell you that. So a little bit ago, uh, the street partnered with uh, a company called Junction Education, and we did, did developed two courses. Uh, Jim and his team created a investing course, and uh, and I created a basic personal financial planning course. The courses. Um, are designed to help people who are unfamiliar with investing, not novices, and unfamiliar with basic financial planning, um, uh, you know, whet their appetite. Um, we we uh, we built these courses so that they are self-paced. Uh, there are quizzes, there are examples, there's a glossary. Um, they're really designed to sort of decode Wall Street in a, in a way that. You know, where in a way that makes sure that your eyes don't glaze over. You know, so many people who have an interest in investing are frightened by the terms, uh, right? They, you know, you, people think, oh, I have to learn about beta and, and Jensen and Trainer and and uh, and volatility and alpha and whatever. And uh, you know, this, these courses are ways for people to learn these terms and to learn how they might apply to their portfolio. I mean, the worst thing that I think anyone can do is to sort of you know, I, I look at, I, I often refer to it as becoming a student of the subject, right? You, you become a student of what you do at work. But when it comes to your money, a lot of times people don't take that kind of interest. And, and so what we want to do is help become help people become students of investing and students of financial planning. So that's why these courses were built. And we'll, we'll see what kind of courses we add to this after we get some feedback. They were just launched. Uh, so far, the feedback's been really great. Um, and, uh, and over time, I'd like to launch courses specific to retirement, for instance, around Social Security and Medicare in particular, where I, okay. I have to tell you, I, so many people ask me questions about Social Security. I, I, um, I, I have a spreadsheet filled with thousands of questions from thousands of readers uh, <laughs> around Social Security, just that alone. Yeah. So. Well, and these courses, uh, these courses, Bob, they're designed really to take someone from from knowing nothing to the point where they can actually sit down with an advisor and have a have a good discussion where they can reach a higher level of comfort with the plan that the advisor is presenting. Yeah, so the phrase I'd like to use, Mike, is um, we we take we're taking you from street level to curbside to advisor's doorstep. And I think from my perspective, uh, you know, I'm not here to create a nation of do-it-yourself investors. Uh, what I'd rather have happen is for an educated uh, investor uh, client walk into an advisor's office and, and maybe when they say, 
something like beta, or maybe when they say claiming strategy, you know, their eyes don't, you know, the prospect client's eyes don't glaze over. They have some working knowledge of what these terms mean. And they, you know, and in much the same way, I think of um, what WebMD did for, right, for the world of medicine sure. in terms of helping people walk into a doctor's office and, and ask questions about this or that or, or this medicine. Uh, you know, you want to have an educated uh, consumer. And, and this is, you know, the purpose of these courses is to have someone uh, walk into an advisor's office with the right questions and, uh, and, not, and not be overwhelmed by the answers. And, and I think the other thing is maybe I, I don't want to log roll, but, you know, if you are an advisor listening to this and you have clients who, you know, may not be as well educated as you'd hope, maybe you recommend that they sign up for this course and, you know, see what effect it has on your ability to um, improve the relationship because they're all that much smarter about investing in yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's a, uh, a, a widow in uh, my neighborhood who I help with her finances, and her only concern is how much money do I have in the bank? Yeah. She doesn't, she's not concerned with, she, she got a nice life insurance settlement when her husband uh, unexpectedly passed, and but it, 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 we would have a much better dialogue if she understood even a smidgen of what was going on. But she has no interest in... Um, uh, it, 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 you know, it's just how much money do I have in my bank? What's my yeah. bank account? And, and it's, it, it, an informed client is one that's going to be a little more sticky too. Uh, it is. And, and, and I think your next question is going to get it so I can amplify on what you just said about your neighbor, because it, I think it's a really important point about what people do with their money in retirement. Yeah. All right. Well, so here it is. Let's, uh, we're going to switch from saving for retirement or pre-retiree. To we're going to switch over to preparing for retirement or living in retirement. Um, uh, some say uh, that the most important investment approach is to have to have a plan and stick with it. Something you talked about, Bob, uh, a little while ago, saying if you if you've thought about how much money you need, that's great. Um, others say you know you're reading about the four percent rule. It works. It doesn't work. Uh, Monte Carlo, how that fits into it. Uh, still others, I, I, there's a, there's a person on the radio down here in San Diego that says, uh, retirement is like getting all the food you would need for the next 30 years. And you have to figure out how to ration it, how to store it. Um, mm -hmm. what it, the question is, is, is there, a, is there a success formula for being in retirement with your money? How, uh, and what is, what are the keys to it? Yeah. I, so I think there is a, a success formula and, uh, and I would say first and foremost, um, you know, having a plan is certainly wise. Uh, sticking with it, um, stick. You know, you don't want to set and forget it, right? That, I mean, one of the important things about creating a retirement policy statement is that you've you've established a plan, but you've also established a plan to revisit that at least annually, or perhaps when life events strike, so that you can adjust the plan. Um, one analogy that uh, I'm fond of using is. When we launch, uh, you know, when the Apollo 11 went to the moon, it just didn't go straight there, right? The, you know, Mission Control in Houston made adjustments to its course along the way. And when, and when they were landing the lunar module back way back when, they made adjustments. They didn't land at the exact spot that they had intended to. They had to take manual control of the, of the lunar module and find the, an appropriate landing spot. Otherwise, it would have crashed into a crater. So have a plan. Uh, but don't set it and forget it. You know, revisit it annually and certainly adjust it as as the circumstances dictate. The four percent rule is, you know, it was a great thing. It was developed, you know, by Bill Bengen a couple twenty years ago. Right. And 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 it, I think it worked. But you know, there are many people who have looked at it in the years since and made improvements on it. And then there are some people who have said, oh, you should have guardrails on the four percent and and withdraw more when the market's up and withdraw less when the market's down. I, I think you know. The, the thing about the 4% rule is maybe it's a good starting point as a place to say, if I have assets of, I don't know, a million dollars, that means I can draw $40,000. And, you know, back of a napkin uh, analysis says, well, I need 80% of my pre-retirement income. I get 40000 from my IRA and I get another 40000 from my Social Security. Well, that gets me to 80% of pre-retirement, right? So back of the napkin analysis says, okay, maybe that works, right, as a general rule of thumb, but I would never sort of depend on it, right? Sure. I would rather have sit down with an advisor with, with their HP 12C or their software and sort of run through the numbers to make sure that, um, that, that whatever withdrawal rate I use 
is appropriate so that my money doesn't run out. And, you know, in Bengen's case, uh, if memory serves, it was, you know, over a 30-year horizon, which is, you know, a fairly long horizon for most retirees. But, you know, what about the 31st year? What about the 32nd year? Um, you know, the, the numbers that just came up from the Census Bureau talked about how many people are now living into their hundreds, and that number is going to grow over the coming decades. Yeah, I saw the I saw so, the, uh, the the tweet you put out on that. That is uh, that's stunning. Scary, right? <laughs> it stunning is scary. Number. Yeah. Uh, so the, so when I think about the, the so all that, then there's one more thing really important. I think when I think about the factors that contribute to success in retirement, we talked about knowing your income. We talked about knowing your expenses. We talked about setting up a policy statement. The one thing that people tend to overlook is um, the Society of Actuaries has actually has a chart where they outline 15 risks that you'll face in retirement that, that are different from what you'd face pre-retirement. And in, and in this chart, they talk about not only the risks, but the ways to manage and mitigate these risks. So we talked about planning for longevity. Do you have enough guaranteed sources of lifetime income? Um, but on the other hand, do you have enough set aside to manage the risk of inflation and the loss of purchasing power? Those two things, right, the balancing the risk of longevity against the risk of inflation, I think are the two most important two of the most important risks that you have to think about. Because on the one hand, investing in something that gives you guaranteed income for life is not the same thing that you would need to make sure that you um, uh, manage the risk of inflation, right? In one case, you might need an annuity, and in the other case, you might need to invest in stocks. And striking that balance between how much do I invest to make sure I don't um, have enough income for my essential expenses over the course of my retirement, as well as how do I, much do I invest to make sure that you know my assets keep pace and outpace inflation is a really, really hard um, calculation to make. And those that's just two of the risks. Um, do you have a plan for long-term care expenses? Do, are you, do you plan to self-fund it? Or do you plan to a mix of self-funding and private pay long-term care insurance? Or do you want to put in place measures to go on Medicaid? If you haven't thought about these things, you know they'll, they'll come as a surprise to you, and then you'll become a burden on your family. Right. Um, have right. you planned for housing, right? I mean, the, the one big asset that many people have that they overlook is housing. And, you know, in many cases, we talked about products that didn't exist several years ago, Roth and HSA. Reverse mortgages didn't exist years ago. And they in fact, 10 right. years ago, right, they mm -hmm. didn't run around. And, and 10 years ago, when I used to talk to financial advisors about reverse mortgages, they would say, oh, those are for poor people. Well, right, <laughs> right, fast forward. Fast yeah. forward 15 years, and some of the top financial advisors in this country are now writing research reports about how to use a reverse mortgage. So, for example, um, one of the risks that you might face in retirement is sequence of return risk, the risk that, right, that you'll be withdrawing money from your portfolio in a declining market. And, 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 and especially if that hits early in your retirement years, it could really throw everything off. So people are saying, well, here's my strategy. I would suggest you get a reverse mortgage at age 62 with a line of credit. Right. You're not going mm -hmm. to pull. You're not going to pull from it, right? It's there as your your safety parachute. So let's say you get to retirement, the market's declining, and instead of pulling from a declining portfolio, well, I'm going to take the line of credit from my reverse mortgage. And a couple things about that. One is right, it's tax-free income, so it, you may not put yourself in a place where you're subject to the uh, the income adjustments on Medicare Part B and Part D. So that's a good thing. And, and, and then when the markets recover, well, you replenish the reverse mortgage. Uh, you know, you're using it in effect as a line of credit. Uh, or you don't replenish it. You don't have to. But, you know, 16 years ago, no one ever thought of this kind of sophisticated way to use a reverse mortgage to manage sequence of return risk. But now it's there. It's available. And if advisors aren't thinking about it, they ought to be as one of the tools in the toolbox to say, this is what we're going to do. The other two big things, I think, in terms of risk, as outlined by the Society of Actuaries, and we give them short shrift in many cases, is divorce and widowhood. Great divorces on the rise. Oh, right. People are splitting right. them, right? Mm -hmm. Splitting assets, quadros, houses, retirement accounts. Everything's been being torn asunder. And so advisors really need to become experts in divorce and quadros and that sort of thing and help their clients prepare for the possibility of you know, their clients, their husband and wife clients becoming you know, his and her, uh, you know, towels in different houses. Right. Um, and, and the same with widowhood. This, I think, is one of the biggest problems that, you know, we sort of face. M men, husbands tend to predecease their wives. Um, husbands tend to be five years older on average. So there's like a gap of 10 years in which uh, a, a, a woman 
uh, a widow might be without, you know, that income from her husband. And so what do advisors need to think about? Well, if a husband has a pension and they've taken a single life, well, they've just, you know, in a way sacrificed their their surviving spouse's standard of living. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should be considering joint survivor. Or if they do take single life, maybe they should be buying a life insurance policy that would then make up the difference between what they would have taken, you know, in a joint and single, you know, to cover expenses for widowhood. Widowhood, you know, to me, it's striking that the percent of widows who live in poverty in this country who are age 65 and older, you know, is atrocious. And there are things that we can do to make sure that that doesn't happen. You know, if you, I, I once wrote a column I called, if you truly loved your spouse, you'd do, you would do these things. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, that, uh. and that falls in that, in that bucket. You know, one of the things that people often do is men, when they claim Social Security, um, uh, they, they tend to think about uh, themselves alone. They don't think about it in terms of the household. And so they'll claim at 62, and you know the net effect of that is they've permanently reduced the survivor's benefit. You know they would be far better off waiting for, to take Social Security to age to full retirement age, whatever that might be. Sure, sure. So then at least the surviving spouse, um, you know, more often than not the the, the woman, uh, you know, gets at least uh, the highest possible survivor's benefit from Social Security. So think about you know widowhood. Think about your household. Think right. about divorce. Think about the sequence of returns. Yeah, it's uh, you know what you touched on there was uh, real close to home to me. The uh, uh, pension with the single life. Uh, my in-laws did that, and they didn't realize they they're they're I, on a scale of one to ten, I'd say they're about a three or a four on financial knowledge, and uh, yeah. they didn't realize that it was a single life, and they didn't realize that once uh, he dies the pension stops and they didn't realize that they were using that for a key part of the retirement income. And they didn't realize that they could use, they could peel off some and buy life insurance. And it, it's all a process of if, if educating people to the point where they know that these are options that they can consider. And, uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, as, as you suggest, it's, uh, it's, uh, people, I, I, at times people are making decisions that they're not equipped to make. Yeah. So, so that brings up a good point. If you're an advisor listening and you say, okay, if I haven't done a what-if scenario for my clients in the case of the husband dying and what effect it has on their sources of income and, and expenses, you know, take for instance, okay, so you lose, um, you lose the, the single life annuity and maybe now you're relying just on Social Security. Um, property taxes, right, you'll still be paying the same even though your spouse died, right? You'll still be paying the same in, in homeowner's insurance, right? They won't be cut in half or by a third, right? So a lot of expenses don't go away. In fact, they, you know, maybe some things go away, right? You, you don't spend as much on food if you're a widow and you may not spend as much on electricity and water and that sort of thing. But some things don't go away. Uh, car insurance, right? Maybe it doesn't go sure. away if you're living on the car. So, you know, really, you know, if you're an advisor, you're doing a disservice to your client if you're not doing what-if scenario planning for clients and, you know, what happens to the surviving spouse's uh, income and expenses because, it, you know, it, you're not going to escape death, right? Um, no, no. no. So, yeah, that's, ain't so that the fact? Yep. Uh, all right. Well, you know, we've touched on Social Security, but I want to touch on it uh, one more time uh, yeah. so we can we can frame it up here. I uh, I did a podcast with uh, Jim Pathakukas, who's uh, who's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he told me that if you're over fifty, you got nothing to worry about. That Social Security will be the same; it's not going to change. But uh, he said, if you're under fifty. If you're a millennial, there could be many changes in store. What, uh, what's your take on it, Bob? Yeah, so I, I might put the cutoff at 40, and I sort of use 1983 as our benchmark when the Greenspan Commission under Reagan you know, put in place all the changes, which included, among other things, raising the, um, the full retirement age uh, from 65 to 67. That took place over uh, decades, right? a number of years, so that people had an opportunity to plan for it. So my, my thought is if you're under 40 at this point, maybe under 45, uh, you have nothing to worry about. But if you're 45 and younger, you should start thinking and planning for a reduced benefit absent any changes. Right now, the trust fund will be exhausted in 2034, and payroll taxes will cover about three quarters of promised benefits. But, you know, right now, if you get your my Social Security statement and, and it tells you what your benefit would be, you know, Reduce that by 25% and start, you know, making plans for it being um, no more than that. Um, and, you know, I know that I think you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what we can do to maybe avoid the, what, the Social Security crisis. Um, you know, there's 
obviously there are people who are talking about eliminating the contribution benefit base, which is now, you know, the taxable maximum sure. is uh, 132,900. Uh, you know, I think that would, I, I think personally, I've spoken to people like Alicia Manalis, the Center for Retirement Research, Andrew Biggs, uh, Jason Fickner, a number of social security experts, and many of them sort of say, well, what you, what, it's not just one lever, it's multiple levers, right? Raising taxes and lowering benefits in some combination and looking at all the levers and making tiny adjustments to all of them. So I think if you were to remove the taxable maximum, that probably, you know, helps. Um, uh, it's possible to raise taxes. The OS, uh, OA uh, SDI tax rate is 6.2% uh, and for employees and employers each. Um, you know, maybe we goes to 6.3. I don't know. Sure. Um, people have talked about taxing your benefit itself, and to a degree, we already do that, right? Right now, you, you know, you'll pay tax um, uh, on, uh, on uh, you know, based on you know, if you're filing a joint return, you have combined income of between 32 and 44,000. You might have to pay income tax on up to 50 percent of your benefit, and if it's more than 44,000, up to 85 percent of your benefit. Right. So in a way, we're already means testing. Social Security, to my from my perspective, sure. So I I think you know maybe maybe you change the numbers, maybe you lower the threshold to I don't know twenty thousand and thirty two, and then thirty two thousand as the eighty five percent number. Uh, you know, there's a lot of social, there's a lot of public policy levers you can pull here. The question really is whether we're going to wait until the roof starts leaking, <laughs> you know, in twenty right in twenty thirty four, whether there's a will tackle this problem or 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 not. And I, you know, I don't see it at the moment in the current Congress, and I don't see it for the foreseeable future that people have any political will and desire um, to fix this. And you know, at the moment, I feel badly for my children and your children because you know they will be retired, who knows when, and they'll be working and you know, contributing to Social Security to pay our benefits, but there won't be, um, you know, enough for them when they go to start claiming. And and there won't be enough on two levels. One is, right, the, the worker-to-retiree ratio will be bad, and then add to the, the, the fact that the fertility rate is declining here in the United States. Sure, right. So, so that's, that's a problem because, you know, we'll, we may never, ever, ever increase the worker-to-retiree ratio if we don't get our fertility rates up or – um, you know, have some sort of, um, you know, planned uh, immigration policy that I think that would at least increase the number of uh, working Americans, uh, uh, legally working Americans here. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I yeah. think the, uh, I think we're kidding ourselves if we're, uh, we think our kids won't hold a coup and say, hey, forget <laughs> it. Forget it. <laughs> we ain't paying. What are you doing? Well, you know, yeah, well, you know, Larry uh, Kotlikoff from Boston University has talked a lot about this generational warfare that is, you know, we're on the precipice of. You're right. I think there's a coup to be had when someone says, hey, let me get this straight. I'm paying for you to retire, and no one's going to be there to pay me? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I'm giving you a dollar, and you're only going to give me 75 cents back? Right. Okay. Right. No, no. <laughs> No, uh, 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 Bob. Hey, uh, how about uh, we touched on it before, but I wanted to just make a uh, make a make a make a spot for it in the in the podcast here. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, is, and I call it co cocktail napkin advice uh, about when somebody should take Social Security benefits. You touched on the fact that uh, uh, that should be in the equation as far as when you consider one spouse living, one spouse dying. Is there is there any is there any I don't know. I don't think there's a magic formula. Some people would take benefits at 62 because they simply need to. Uh, but if you have the option, if you have the choice, where do you where do you generally uh, see people going down? Well, I, I think, you know, full retirement age at a, at a minimum. I think, you know, like I said, that think household, think your surviving spouse. Um, and then think, you know, this is something that, you know, here in the United States, we have this um, people have often called it financial illiteracy. You know, people don't have a really good understanding of probability and predictability. So one of the stats I'd like to remind people about is that if a man and woman are married, that the chance of that at least one of them will live to any given age is always increased. So there's a 72% chance that one of them will live to age 85, a 45% chance that one will live to age 90, and an 18% chance that one will live to age 95. So, you know, think about that. You're, you know, a one in five chance that one of you will live to age 95. Um, you know, are, are you planning for that horizon? Are you planning for that possibility, the probability 
that one of you know, right? For one one in five of all the couples that you know will, you know, some of, of those ten, you know, one is going to live in ninety five, and and you know, many planners I talked to today, uh, when I asked them what, <laughs> stop for a moment. What when I when people ask me how do you how do you build a bulletproof retirement plan? I say, well, if you tell me your date of death, I can build you a bulletproof retirement plan. Right. right? Exactly. So. So, so what's the best way to, you know, in the absence of not knowing your date of death, what's the best way to build a bulletproof retirement plan? Well, that's the plan for the worst case scenario. So if you say, I'm using age 95 as my planning horizon, well, at least now you've covered at least, you know, 80% of the probabilities. And, you know, if you want to plan in the age 100, then you've covered 95% of the possibilities of, you know, what could happen to someone's money. And I think, you know, what, what people want in retirement is peace of mind. And you as an advisor need to give your clients peace of mind. And how do you do that? You say, well, we plan, we've, we've, we've looked at your income, we've looked at your expenses, we've created this policy statement, we've managed, you know, the 15 risks that you might face in retirement, and, and we have enough money to fund the possibility that one of you will live to age 90. Um, you feeling okay about that? Great. Then I've done my job. You can go home and we'll talk in, you know, in a year or so. Uh, you know, and that's I think what people need to think about when I think about Social Security is that among among all benefits, right? You, no one has ever been able to tell me that they can manage longevity risk using risky assets, right? They, it, it's just impossible. Sure. But right. Social, Social Security is the one benefit that manages longevity risk because you can't outlive it, and it's inflation adjusted. So why would you take it early and permanently reduce your COLA adjustment, right? The longer you wait. I mean, one, one example I'll give people is, uh, I forget which firm it was. I think it might have been Prudential several years ago. came out with a paper that said, okay, we understand that you want to take Social Security early. Let's propose a bridge strategy. And the bridge strategy, in essence, is this. Instead of taking Social Security at 62, um, start withdrawing either money from your IRA or maybe buy an, a, a single premium income annuity of 10-year period and and then let your Social Security grow and take it at 70. That gives you the highest possible benefit. And then you can turn off, you know, because you had an income annuity of whatever it was, eight years, 10 years, you turn that off or you stop taking withdrawals from your IRA. Well, now you've given yourself the highest possible Social Security benefit. And if you've taken money from your IRA, you've lowered the possible lowered possibly have lowered the required minimum distributions that you'll take at age 70 and a half. So you get to have your cake and eat it too in right. some regards. Yeah. Right. Reduce your so, potential I, taxable right. income too. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, think about, you know, th this one benefit that is unlike any other, right. Inflation adjusted income for life. Nothing else like it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I was uh, working with one of our writers here at uh, FMG, uh, and they were struggling with the concept of an annuity, a uh, fixed annuity. And I said, mm -hmm. what a great deal if you have $10 million. Put it into a fixed annuity. <laughs> it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. You can play right. golf all the time. You don't need to think about it. Just open your mailbox yeah. up once a month. Right. And that's what, you know, that's what people want is a paycheck, right? I mean, they, they go from working for 40 years where a paycheck arrives in their bank account every other week or once a month or whatever, you know, the pay period is once a week. Uh, to, to no paycheck, right? And so you want to be able to sort of recreate that in some form or fashion. Right. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, giving yourself the best chance to, you know, deal with the odds of living a long life is, is something that you need to think about. All right, Bob, we're near the end. We'll try to cut this, yep. advisors, in uh, two, three minutes. I wanted just to, Bob, to touch on uh, Medicare. Uh, okay. Know, lots, lots is written on what you need, supplemental plans. Uh, is there a good way to view Medicare? Yeah. So uh, again, this is, you know, Medicare is a problem too, but we'll, we'll forget that for a second. So, you know, the study, Fidelity has suggested that, uh, that a couple 65 retiring today would need about $280,000 uh, net present value to cover healthcare expenses in retirement. That works out to about 14,000 per year or $7,000 per person. Uh, Ebree has said the need to be as high as $360,000. And, uh, and what I'd say, what my takeaway from both these numbers is, wow, that's a lot, right? Those are muffin choker <laughs> numbers. <laughs> are. Those are <laughs> right. big. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, start I, start the stashing average, the max into your HSA right now. Right. And the average American doesn't even have 280 in their 401k. So, you know, we, this is a bit problematic. But those are averages, right? And the, the analogy I like to use is, well, a river is, you know, one foot deep at the shore and 30 feet deep in the middle. 
and one foot deep at the other shore. Um, so, and on, but so on average, it's, you know, 15 feet deep, but you know, <laughs> it's, it depends on where you are. Yeah. So I think people need to personalize their healthcare expenses. Um, one way to do that, there's a website called, uh, I think ARP has a healthcare calculator. Uh, HBSfinancial.com has a healthcare calculator. Go in and plug in your own numbers. And, you know, and in many cases, uh, you can get a sense of, you know, what your personal healthcare expenses will be based on the medicines that you take, based on your family history. And that gives you the best possible chance. Know this too. You don't need $280,000 set aside at age 65 to pay for healthcare expenses in retirement. Much of America pays for healthcare expenses in retirement out of cash flow. Right. Some of that cash flow may be, you know, your IRA or your HSA or your social security check, which pays for Part B. Uh, um, so, you know, don't think that you have to retire with that big nest egg. It's going to come out of your cash flow. Um, and, and typically, the customary and expected, expected costs are easy to plan for. It's those unexpected ones that you need to think about. And that's where you need to have some plan, whether it's the equity in your house or a long-term care policy, or maybe you have set aside some you know, emergency funds for healthcare expenses outside and above your normal expected costs. But whatever it is, you can't hide, right? I keep talking about hiding your head in the sand. This is the big one. I think this is the one that leads to the most bankruptcies in this country. And uh, and is the most problematic financially. So you know, plan, plan, but plan at a personal level, not using the averages from Fidelity or Ebert. Gotcha. Uh, I agree. I think people believe that they need to arrive at retirement with uh, two hundred eighty thousand dollars. It's not. That's just not the way it works. Right. All right. So here's our last question. Last question, listeners. Yep. This is one of my favorites. Okay, you got to have your crystal ball for this one, Bob. You're a financial advisor. You have two hundred clients. And you're working with them on their investing in retirement plans. What economic or financial concern would you have for the next five years? What uh, what positives or what potential issues would you stress with those customers? Yeah. So I, 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 first, economic. I think uh, you know, we are in a period of low interest rates, and no one knows how long it's going to continue. There was a story in the front page of the Wall Street Journal yesterday that said every single economist polled about what, where the two-year note uh, would be uh, at the end of the, uh, you know, after a three-month period, got it wrong, right? No one predicted that it would be this low at, at this point in time. And so, you know, that economically, we have to, I think, predict for a low interest rate environment. I, I think, uh, are you using the appropriate discount rate, investment return rate for your client's portfolio? Uh, you know, the, the, the CalPERS of the world are now using, you know, they're lowering their investment return projections. You might need to do that with your client's portfolio. And I think, you know, over time, we have to think about higher taxes or a lower quality of life, right? Lower quality standard of living. Uh, higher taxes have to be in our future, possibly, to fund everything. Sure. Whether it's Social Security or Medicare or roads being paved or streetlights being on or the military or, you know, or fences or bar walls, whatever it is. I think higher taxes are going to, you know, be in our future. Not to mention twenty-two trillion dollars in debt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, someone has to care about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Someone other than Jerome Paul has to care about that. Right. Yeah. And and and, and I don't want to, you know, people always say this that you know we're saddling our children and our grandkids with this debt, and it's not so much our standard of living that's at risk; it's their standard of living. And, uh, you know, and, and no one seems to feel the pain of that, right? Because it's sort of absent from our life, yep. right? The pain out of sight, of that, out of mind. Yep. It's out of sight, out of mind. And it worries me tremendously because it's, it's like, you know, the, the landfill that was in your backyard that didn't, wasn't a problem when, uh, when it was only one foot high. But now that it's 30 feet high, it is a problem. So, and you were like, how'd that happen? Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I wasn't paying attention to this. I'm like, well, we're trying. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'd mention from a financial perspective, um, uh, a couple things. One is um, to stress with your clients um, this, this notion of an annual checkup. Uh, how do you plan to use the equity in your home? Where will you live? A lot of people want to retire to a tax-friendly state. Well, if you plan to do that, you better make sure that it really, really, really is tax-friendly and it's what you want. And then the last thing for people who are uh, – well, the biggest problem that people have in retirement, absent the money, is that they retire from something and not to something. So help your clients retire to something. That, that will help them financially, right? That, and if it means working in retirement, but doing the thing that they've always wanted to do, um, so be it. Or, uh, I mean, I can tell you this. I hear countless stories from people who say, oh, I, 
I retired so that I could play golf. But now that golf has become my job in retirement, I don't like golf as much as I used to when I was working. So, you know, golf is not the answer. You've got to have a purposeful life in retirement. And anything you can do, I'm a big fan of Mitch Anthony. He talks a lot about the new retirementality. Uh, figure out what it is that help your clients retire to something. And then the last thing I'll mention is every day, the, you know, the reason that I love what I do is it's not the same. There's new research that comes out. There's new products. There are new strategies, new tax laws, new tactics being advanced. Um, if you're a, 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 an advisor and you really want to help your client, become a student of this subject and be open to new ideas. I talked to countless advisors who, you know, they've been trained to do something one way and, 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 you know, in a world that they become a hammer and treat everything like a nail. Right. Uh, you know, right. I mean, think about all the tools that are available to you to help your clients succeed in retirement, plan for, live in. There are many things that you're probably not using today, and maybe it's because you don't have a license for it, or maybe you don't have the, uh, uh, the, the, the education to do it. Get the license, build a team, get the education, um, leave no tool. Uh, untouched in terms of its po the possibility that it could help you. And, uh, and I think also from a, just one last thing, from a liability perspective, I think advisors will do themselves a great service and their clients a great service if they say, look, I've examined all these risks. I've examined all these products. Um, we, we, and you and I, we talked about these things. You said no to this. You said yes to this. You said no to this. And, and you build yourself a, a, a liability, you know, proof case for, for, you know, not to be crass, but not being sued, right? I think building someone to retire, you know, there's nothing worse than having someone, an heir to one of your clients come in and say, oh, my, my dad ran out of money. And, they, and you were like, oh, yeah, well, we didn't talk about reverse mortgages or we didn't talk about long-term care insurance. Well, if that's the case, you should have, right? right? right. Because you, you've just done it. So, you know, get smart, get licensed, get educated, um, you know, help your clients succeed. And, uh, and you know, and, and I think the benefit of that will be you'll maintain clients for life and you'll maintain their, the client's children for life because you did right by your clients. Right, right. And it, uh, it gives you, it gives you that, that good feeling that you've done everything. And uh, I know financial advisors uh, really, really enjoy that feeling that they've done everything for their clients. Yeah, I mean, that's the point of being an advisor right, is that you're helping someone achieve their financial goals. Yeah. And uh, the degree to which you do that is the degree to which you should feel proud about what you've done for someone. Yep. Awesome. All right, Bob. Well, that's awesome. That was a great podcast. I think we uh, we went up for a good amount of time. Advisors, I sure hope you uh, I sure hope you were taking a few notes. I think there's probably about, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 good blog posts in there. Um, Bob, thank you for taking time out of your day. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. And this, uh, and and just so we're just we're recording this a day or two before the seventh game of the Stanley Cup, just so everybody knows, Bob is a Bruin fan. Yeah, don't yeah. hold it against me. No. But, uh... <laughs> I know St. But, Louis hasn't know. won anything, but well, too bad. Yeah, not not at our expense. <laughs> let it be at the Montreal Canadiens' expense. <laughs> there you go. All right, all right, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.